This episode's brought to you by everynowheremusic.com. Yep, you got that right. That's yours truly. So if this is an endeavor you'd like to support, please come and sign up for my newsletter at everynowheremusic.com. Every nowhere or every now here, depending on whichever way you prefer to look at it. Full disclosure, I took my time to edit this one. There's just so much goodness in there and the connection in this conversation is real. This was medicine for me, this conversation. Jake is one of the best out there. It's as simple as that. Here's the reason why two words, Michelle and Degiacello. Who plays keyboards with her? Jake Sherman. And uh, that kind of is just a mark that sets a certain tribe of musicians apart to a very different corner altogether. It's just a brand of dedication and a striving for a certain quality of artistic practice, which is very rare in this current zeitgeist of social media-centric processes of uh, making art. Clearly, as you'll hear through the progress of this conversation, we don't find a lot of these aspects particularly attractive. And uh, I think this is a great time to address that specific topic, where are we headed as artists? And uh, how exactly do we bring together the artistic processes with our career goals? I do want to take a minute to remind you that this is a completely independent show. So if you'd like to support us, please go subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. This show is also brought to you by my Mentorship Academy, the Holistic Musician Academy. And if this is something that interests you, please do not hesitate to come around and hit me up. All right, without much further ado, Jake Sherman. Hello, fellow beings. Welcome loading a safe space to attempt honest raw and authentic conversation in homage to the ancient act of stoking a sacred fire welcome jake thank you thanks for having me yeah thank you so much for coming on you you're um fabulous sport uh i'm just a <laughs> random guy on the internet who happened to have uh, scammed a common friend to uh, put me on to you and you just came on there. I really appreciate that. That's super cool of you. You had a professional looking email, so I was fooled. <laughs> you got me there. Uh, I do run a side gig as a copywriter, so oh, nice. I tend to try and exploit that to my maximum advantage, I will admit. <laughs> that being said, I do want to shout out to Vishal, my friend, for uh, putting us in touch. Yes, one of the great drummers of our time. Indeed, sir. Amen to that. I do start off this show, quote unquote, I can't believe I call it a show these days. I used to be so allergic to that in the beginning, mm -hmm. because this started off as just musicians hanging with each other. But I do start it off with a walk down memory lane on my first memory ever of my guest. Um, in your case, it was an Instagram story by Nick Samrad. Cool. This was pre-pandemic, I think. So that'll be around five years. Well, it's been that long already. Yep. Uh, saying, okay, these are the folks you need to be listening to, keyboard folks. And um, yours was a profile which kind of instantly resonated with my heart because of your hyphenated profile of being a songwriter and multi-instrumentalist and badass pianist. Thank you. And um, I have this whole bunch of questions here lined up, which I thought I'd pick your brain on, but I also don't want to come across as one of those really lame music journalists. So um, 
I will, however, risk that by asking you a lame journalistic kind of questions, which is, what's your earliest memory of music, Jake? That's a good question. Yeah, you think? <laughs> um, did, did I do okay? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, my dad is a harpsichordist, so my earliest memories are him practicing when oh. I was uh, sleeping in, in the morning. I would wake up to him practicing. Wow. And uh, he would be practicing Bach usually, and I, I learned tons of those pieces by ear just because he would be playing them every day, working on them over and over again. And they would get into my memory until I could sort of sing them back. Um, wow. And that, I think, is the sort of groundwork for, like, understanding harmony, really. I am ever so slightly jealous. I will admit that is, like, pretty much the most beautiful entry into the world of harmony one can possibly think of, you know, listening yeah. to your father playing Bach in your sleep. Good. I mean... Shout out to your dad, man. Shout out. I kind of wish he was my dad now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, where did it go from there? Uh, well, I started taking piano lessons pretty early on, when I was five, I think. Um, and about five years after that, I discovered Ragtime. And that was the first music that really clicked with me. Ragtime? So I, yep. Ooh, so that's interesting. I learned a lot of... Scott Joplin rags sort of by ear and sort of with the help of sheet music and my parents who helped me practice um, and taught me how to practice, which is something that is very hard to teach, I think. Very hard for a young, for a child to understand how to repeat the part that you suck at mm -hmm. and not just, not just steamroll over it, you know? Wow. So I credit my parents, both my mom and my dad, for showing me that... Um, that took probably uh, eight years of them practicing with me pretty much every day for me to understand what practicing is. Wow. Yeah. So were your parents both professional musicians? Um, yes, my dad uh, was a professional harpsichordist and still is, and my mom is a flutist. What kind of an influence do you think that has had? Or when you compare... Um your upbringing to some of your colleagues who maybe don't come from musical families. Do you see a marked difference in your fundamental mindset in the way you've approached music over the years? Well, I'm always amazed at people who start playing an instrument later in life. Mm -hmm. There are those people who start in their teens and it just all sort of clicks. Um, and I'm also amazed when people don't have musical parents. Um, and I do have some friends who are like that, but, uh, I'm not sure how it works. They seem to be great also. <laughs> they, you know, they, they have a musical understanding. Mm -hmm. But I definitely credit mine to, to, uh, having, to being very young and ha intaking a lot of music. It's almost like literally being born into and growing up with the language, the difference between that and, that and choosing to go learn a language at some point in your life on your own accord, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And I don't know any other spoken languages, but mm. I, I've, you know, I've tried a bit and I understand it's really, really hard to do if, if you're older. Yeah, you think? To learn a language when you're older? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Because you're, you concentrate too hard. You're, you're trying too hard to do it. That it doesn't so just true. filter through you. That is so true. But I guess immersion is, is the way and that's the same with music.
Oh, may I pick your brain a little more on that, please? Immersion. I love that word. How 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 would you define immersion? Uh, well, for languages, I'm thinking it means that you're not allowed to speak your mother tongue. Mm-hmm. That you go somewhere where they only speak the language you're trying to learn, and you have no choice but to just hear it all the time, and it accelerates your learning. Um, and I do feel that I sort of had that with music, or as close as you can, really, because I heard it all day growing up. Mm. So if if I I'm, I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, please accept my apologies. Sure, sure. But I'm, I'm really like thinking out loud. So if we were to reproduce that experience for someone who didn't, especially from an educator's point of view, how what would you say is the best way to kind of um, offer that experience to someone who wants to learn from you, for example? Because I know you teach and you're really good at it. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I do teach a lot. Um, I guess I've had most success or most. I've spent the most time with teaching teaching jazz, mm-hmm. and I do believe in immersion in that you need to just listen all the time. That's basically it. Like if you if you practice one hour a day, but and that's the only time you're hearing jazz, you're never going to get it. I love that. But if you have it on in the background all day, every day, and then you practice one hour a day, that's completely different, and it, it you'll just be able to start having it come out of you. Oh, it's so good to hear that from you, man. I really appreciate that. It's um, I, I so agree with you. It's actually kind of pretty much the first education I ever had. I was lucky enough to be um, kind of picked up and uh, get in a quote-unquote apprentice position with a Latin percussionist who I um, worked with in my early teens. I think I started when I was 15. And basically all he literally, all the homework I got was listening to music at least five hours a day. So his his formula was if you're putting in 30% of practice, the rest of the 70% has to be listening to music. Because otherwise you don't really have any idea what you're practicing for in the first place. Exactly, yeah. It's interesting, when I went to conservatory in my uh, at 20, no one told me that. Like no one at conservatory seems to talk about that a lot. Do you have an opinion on that? Um. Well... When you're studying, when you have like a guru or uh-huh. a grandmaster type person, they're always going to tell you that. Mm-hmm. And conservatories can sometimes be far from that if you're just going from class to class, having your hour with each person. Um, and it's really important to have someone who you look up to, who you trust for all the answers. Mentorship. That can eventually, yeah, mentorship. Exactly. I guess that can eventually become problematic if you're if you take everything they say at face value. But exactly, I think there has to be a time in your life where you do take everything at face value from your mentor. Mm. Uh, it takes away a certain part that isn't healthy for learning. You don't want to be questioning everything you hear. You want to just be like, okay, this is the way I'm going to do this, and not question it. It's so interesting that you say that. Um, I feel like the timing of a mentor's entrance and exit are so intricately related to the health of that relationship. Yeah. Very few have mastered, in my experience, and I've had some really amazing mentors who thankfully have taught me the importance of that, but I observed that it's probably one of the most challenging parts of that relationship, isn't it? The timing of the entry and the exit of that relationship. Yeah, I guess I haven't thought about that that much, but it really does matter. My, My mentor on organ was Dr. Lonnie Smith. No way. Uh, I did not I know that. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I studied with him once or twice a year for 
four years, five years. Mm -hmm. um, and my parents would drive me to New York to meet him and spend the day with him. Wow. Um, yeah, and that was really important. I was 14 or 15, maybe, until 18 or 19. Okay, how did that come about? How did the whole idea... Were you friends with him already as far as a family? Or I went to a jam session in Rhode Island where the organist Lonnie Gasparini had, had an organ. That's why I went, actually, because there was a real organ. It was my first time playing a real organ. So wow. I convinced my mom to drive me mm -hmm. all the way down just to see a real organ and play it. And then he said that he had the connection to Dr. Lonnie. And he said, like, this is who you should be mentored by. Here's his number. This is what you need to do. Wow. So I did. What was the next step yep. after that jam session? Well, we, after I called him and set it up, we drove to his house in Harlem and knocked on the door and uh, he let me in and, and it was supposed to be a two hour lesson, but basically I stayed there for the entire day and, that was the best. you know, he had two organs mm -hmm. and we would basically, he wouldn't even talk that much really. Huh. which was amazing. That taught me a lot about how to teach. Ooh. The more talking, the less, uh, the less doing. <laughs> so we would just play together. And he would, he would sort of stop me when I was going off into something that wasn't the right feeling mm. and steer me back on track. How do you do that? Uh, he would just give a sound of affirmation when it was working, mm -hmm. you know? And if it wasn't, he would just, I, I don't really remember how he would stop it. Maybe it was more just positive affirmations, just telling me when it was right. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I remember, I do remember some comments he gave. He told me that the pedals, which are like the bass notes that you play with your left foot, he said, it, it sounds like you're stomping through a cornfield, <laughs> which uh, was negative. Mm -hmm. I didn't really even understand what that meant, but I think it just meant, it wasn't light. It sounded like, like sort of just uh, like crunchy and, and not nuanced. Oh, wow. That's actually a really well-described analogy to kind of get the message across <laughs> if you think about it. Yeah, he, he spoke like that always. Do you um, remember your first lesson, apart from the fact that you, that ended up being a whole day trip? What did you folks work on? Uh, mainly the bass. He made me understand mm -hmm. that on organ, the bass is everything, the left hand and the foot. And if you don't have that together, then it doesn't matter how good the right hand is. It's really, you're not doing the thing. Oh, so. And that so, sort of is true for, it expands to all of jazz and most of Western music, I guess, that, mm -hmm. that like the rhythm and the bass and the drums are what keeps things sounding real. It's interesting, like you, you, your first memory is of Bach and your first mentor is someone who's very on point with, how bass plays a role. It's almost like you've had the upbringing of a bassist. Yeah, you know, Bach definitely. In Oregon, and the first thing you get taught is the relevance of bass. Definitely. Well, yeah, on Oregon, you really do play bass. There's no bass player. So that, I, you know, from starting at age 13 or 12, I was really clued into how the bass locks in the music. And then I learned uh, um, electric bass during mm -hmm. college, but that I really did have the groundwork already because of organ. Yeah, I can imagine. Mm -hmm. Do you enjoy playing electric bass? Yeah, it's one of my favorite things to do. And it definitely influences how I produce. Yeah, I can 
totally imagine. I've heard you play. It sounds great, man. It really kind of hits the spot immediately. I've only caught a few random clips on Instagram, but it's like, oh, yes, that's uh, <laughs> that, exactly that's exactly how it's meant to be then. Thank you. That was my got a response to it. And now it all kind of makes sense. I thought, and you know, this is only me thinking out loud. I could immediately hear all that harmonic. Because a, a lot of people, especially piano players or even guitar players, they at some point end up fiddling with bass. And some of them even have a, a decent degree of technical or motoric proficiency. Mm-hmm. But um, not the correct mindset, because it is a very specific mindset for bass. It is, yeah. And a great bass player, it's like a way of life to play oh, bass. Oh, you nailed that one. I will completely <laughs> second you on that. But before I digress too much uh, on that, I want to go back to your first mentorship thing. You say the word guru yesterday or day before was actually what's called Guru Purnima in, in India, which is like a, the annual celebration day of the whole guru thing. And uh, it's a loaded word in this day and age, the word guru. Yeah. I think... That's no coincidence, especially in a global context. Music education in itself is a loaded word. Yeah. Feels like um, its whole relevance is kind of uh, changing in a lot of ways. Primarily because it, it's becoming, um, for one, and this is just my observation and opinion, and please let me know what you think about this, that whole divide between practicing artists and music educators blurred increasingly, right? Yeah, very much. Yeah, with uh, posting, I've I've wrestled with that a lot because yeah. the posts that I post that do the best are the ones where I'm teaching, basically, where I'm showing how I do things. May I ask you when you start noticing that? Sorry, uh, I interrupted you, by the way. There's no, a, there no. is a slight latency, just so you know. It's every now and then yeah, I might no. come across as rude. I apologize in advance. No problem. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure when I noticed, just looking at the likes of posts and like the the response people... I think a lot of my audience are uh, young musicians who want to learn mm-hmm. and they like to see that. But I'm realizing that I don't want my output to be just teaching. So recently I started a Patreon and I'm, that makes things much clearer because now I can funnel my educational stuff into that and the things that I put out on YouTube or, or Instagram or whatever are my actual music. Do you have a strategy you actually follow in that entire marketing content creation thing or do you, you just go with your gut? Yeah, I've tried things at different times. Right now I'm sort of pushing away from it a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm seeing what it feels like to do less posting, much less consuming of Instagram and seeing if that will free up space for more creativity and more output because I'm realizing like following trends and things like that is not what I want to be doing. I want to be just making as much as I can mm-hmm. and putting it out and not worrying about it. Yeah, it feels really good to hear that, man. More power to you on that. Often feels like um, like an endless loop. It's Also, with the whole content creation thing, there are a lot of strategies with regards to what we should be posting and how much we should be posting. There's lots of theories on that, studies on that. But no one really talks about where it's supposed to stop. Right. Um, yeah, I think just looking at Instagram is very unhealthy. We all we all know that. Completely agree. <laughs> um, but for me, I had to take drastic steps in order to not look at it, which means deleting it from my phone and blocking it from my computer. Ooh. So every time I post, 
I have to re-download it, re-sign in, do the post, and then delete it again. So it takes an extra like 10 minutes or so, but it definitely dissuades me from, from just sort of blindly opening the app. That's a great strategy, actually. Um, I've heard a few, um, uh, quite a few other creators slash artists talk about this too. Uh, I tried it out for a bit, and I don't know why I stopped. I guess the addiction won, that's why. <laughs> well, it's really depressing to stop because it is yeah. a dopamine rush or whatever oh, kind yeah. of rush. Mm. Um, and I still haven't fully recovered. Like I have this urge to open the phone, and now all I have is email, text, and, well, that's basically it. And, you know, if there's no new email, no new text, it's like I'm just holding it, looking at it like, well, what do I do? Um, and I'm hoping to get to the point where I guess the urge to even take out the phone becomes lessened. May I ask you how that's going? Well, I feel an emptiness from not having it, for sure. But I'm trying to just go through with that. But do you see uh, a difference in the way it influences your approaching of music making? Do you see more space freed up for that? Or feel? Uh, I don't that? think so yet. I think it's a long process. I do notice that I'm filling the empty space with other technology things, which mm -hmm. is not really the goal. Like, for example, one of my uh, sort of like guilty pleasure things is looking at Craigslist, looking at instruments on Craigslist. Oh, yeah. And I'm on there even more like it's just my go-to thing when i'm on the computer i just type it in um so now that i don't have instagram that's up even more and i look at youtube more so uh i haven't quite figured it out yet i'm in the process of replacing things with other things which is not really what i wanted to do but i think it's a positive step at least to not be looking at instagram permission to share a few thoughts on this on what uh, on this whole social media thing. Oh, well. No, I, I was asking your permission to share a few of oh, thoughts. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Because I don't want to make this all about me. You're the guest and I want to make sure that's... Oh, clear. I'm curious to hear. Uh, yeah, but I, I did feel like there was something. It's interesting. Um, I actually recently started, well, this year, I started working for um, a, a music PR marketing firm who, who are based on New York too, actually, which has been an entirely very interesting experience. It's it feels so different if you're doing research on social media or marketing for other artists. All of a sudden, uh, for one, you don't get a dopamine hit as much because you're really a lot more focused on what is working and what is not working. Mm. It helps you really laser focus in on, okay, what the actual purpose of this is, how it fits into the whole marketing ecosystem for an artist, what it's actually doing, what it's not doing. And that, it's been a very really interesting experience to notice um, the effect that has had on my, for lack of a better term, curation skills of my own social media. Interesting. Indeed. It's all of a sudden, it's, it's given me, it's, it's almost like my skills of detachment have kind of gotten a little more solid. Mm. That being said, what it hasn't helped with is my screen time because a lot of the work I have to do for my clients is actually on the phone. I never thought I'd be at the position. Right. It's kind of cool too. You can be on a you can be on a tram and get some work done, but on the other hand, you're also right. kind of you always stuck to the phone. So I'm hoping I'll find a, a more balanced approach to that as I get a little more used to this gig. Yeah, I do feel like it might be important for me to have someone else do it for me. You know, yeah, because I don't think the goal is really for me to just not be posting. Yes, it's just for not for me to not be consuming. 
Yeah, totally hear you. Also, it might be for me to not be posting because I don't want to make things in order to post. I want to make larger scale things, albums, all that stuff. Absolutely. That is, that's a big question mark, which I'm um, really at at this point because I'm, I'm a huge fan of the whole why, what, how framework. So finally, after like five years of dealing with this whole social media, self-doubt, whatever, you know, comparison, um, it will compare despair thing. Um, I finally figured out the why behind social media for a musician. Mm. I've also figured out the what, what needs to be done in order to, for it to actually work for a musician. Now I need to figure out the how, because I'm like, okay, I know what works. I know why we're supposed to be doing this and how to kind of make something meaningful out of it. I still don't know how to go about it, though. Okay, so briefly tell me the what and the why, please. Uh, I think the why is to the best of my abilities. Shit, I feel like I'm, you're the guest, dude, but okay, I will uh, answer <laughs> that question. Uh, to the best of my abilities, and I work with someone who has been doing this for 25 years at the time. She started off being a music marketer. She's, her name's Ariel Hyde, by the way. I don't think she's mind having her name coded. They, her promo package to New York Times would be literally a package with wrapping paper she'd chose, uh, chosen at the local um, stationery store. Um, I think the why is part of the artist's job to use their art to connect to their audience and build a relationship with them. Mm-hmm. I think that would be the why behind using social media to attain that goal to the best of my understanding. The what is basically figuring out a bunch of stuff like who are my audiences? Businesses talk about this whole client avatar thing. So the musician's equivalent of that. Um, who is my ideal audience? Who is my target audience? And um, how do I address them in a way that they feel seen as my audience? That's the what. Mm-hmm. There's the how. I have no idea how the how works yet. But mm-hmm. if I get there, I will let you know. <laughs> that's that's nice. my biggest question, Marcus. I don't know how to go about it because it feels like so much work. It's so much work that I'm actually spending 10 to 15 hours a day, a week, excuse me, uh, on, a, on a paid uh, gig to do this for someone else. So uh, sometimes I feel like maybe that's the only solution now, that I hire someone else to do that for me. But that's a big question mark too because I think audiences realize when it's not you actually communicating. Definitely. It has to be written in your own voice for sure. I do know that. And I'm trying to lean into that more as I... That's I get more into this. I think you said something very important as well when you said in your own voice. I think there are, I think it's in our advantage as artists to really look upon social media as a musical tool, as counterintuitive as it sounds. To like really look at it as an extension of our art, right? Which includes our own, you know, stamping it with our own voice, which is so much easier said than done, though. And that's why there's there's the dopamine rush because it feels if you do it right it really feels like an extension of yourself, yeah. and then you feel judged on that. Oh yeah, and then there's that whole self-loathing thing and self-doubt thing, and right. uh, you know one post works and the next doesn't, and all of a sudden it's like ooh dopamine going all the way down. It's um, yeah, quite then. Yeah, I've been noticing if you do the same sort of post over and over again. I'm not sure. I've I've seen that work for people. Mm. But I'm releasing this solo piano album now, oh, wow. and each each one or solo piano and vocal, and each post is a similar in that it's filmed in the same place. It's just me at a piano singing, and all that's different really is the song and mm-hmm. my clothing and the lighting. And I wonder if 
that's helpful or harmful. <laughs> it seems to be harmful in that the first post did really well, and then some of the later ones aren't doing as well. But it might be that might be because the first one was like the announcement of the albums that people are excited. It might be the algorithm. I'm not really sure, but I hate even thinking about that. That's the kind of stuff I don't want to be doing. Yeah, I totally feel you, man. If it's any consolation, I think part of the process is also making peace with the fact that success by definition of an artist and success by definition of the other players in the ecosystem, they're never going to be identical. Right. Just something, you know, the sooner we make peace with that, the easier it gets. And notice when I don my uh, artist coach hat or artist or like marketing hat or even copywriter hat, it is a complete shift in perspective. Like I will, I find myself telling people things that I would not be happy listening to at all sometimes. In some ways. It's like a harsh truth that can only make sense coming from someone else. And, you know, we're not equipped to tell ourselves that. Mm. Mm. You know, we can't be our own therapist, right? Right. Yeah. I don't know how, where that came from. But um, oh, tell me a little about your uh, new album, please. Let's try and talk about music again. That sounds really, really interesting. Oh, right. Music. Have you ever asked yourself if you need a mentor? Because I'm pretty sure everyone, including me, does. If you struggle to navigate the nuances of your personal artistic goals with the lifestyle of a professional artist, you're not alone. The amount of self-doubt and rejection we deal with in a day is often more than what other professions are confronted with in years. I've been there. So I know. I've witnessed the transformative impact of mentorship firsthand on my own artistic journey. My mentors have completely changed my life. And it's time for me to return the gesture. I combine my 20 plus years experience as a professional performing artist and educator with my more recent explorations as a certified personal trainer and psychotherapist to offer fellow artists what I call 360 degree mentorship. Not just music lessons, but healthy approaches to artist development, self-care, resilience and clarity in mindsets, relationship building and unpacking limited beliefs to clear up those myths and get the kind of reality check that will shock you with revelations on how much more you're capable of. For those of you who are not ready to invest in one-on-one -on -one mentorship just yet, I've been working on a masterclass that gives you exactly the kind of grounded overview you need to understand the solutions to building an artistic career and practice. It's based on years of research with my students and clients and the grapples they have dealt with and found solutions to. What's more, you can pre-enroll for this course today by securing your spot now you will be among the first to benefit with lifelong access to this course with a 50% scholarship, no questions asked. Mentorship has the power to transform your journey. Invest in yourself. It's the one thing I promise you will not regret. But don't take my word for it. Go check out www.holisticmusicianacademy.com and read through what the artists I've been working with have to say. Hit me up on www.holisticmusicianacademy.com yeah, how, how did this whole uh, solo piano singer-songwriter album come about? Well, I did a lot of touring over the past couple of years, which started with a more technology-heavy setup mm -hmm. where I was, I was uh, playing bass on a keyboard and I was playing hi-hat in the left foot and bass drum in the yeah. right foot and keys in the right hand and singing. Um, and that did have sort of an immediate effect on the audience where they were, they were amazed it was amazing. But through, through the couple of years of tour, there were a couple of gigs where some of that stuff didn't work, where like I would show up and there was no hi-hat or something like that, so I couldn't do the setup. Mm -hmm. And there was a nice grand piano at one of these places, so I just played that out of necessity because I couldn't use my setup. 
And it sort of hit the audience in a different way, I realized. Boom. May I ask you how? Yeah. So first of all, it made me really concentrate on singing and delivering the song because that's all there was. There wasn't this extra layer of, of uh, excitement going on. And I realized through it that that's really the point. And what I want to do is deliver the song as best I can and mm-hmm. be, be believable through that, not through like a quirky, weird uh, thing that no one's ever seen before, which is the, that setup I was using. So I started honing in on that and using more pianos and less of the setup mm-hmm. until by the end I had stopped using the setup completely and I was just playing piano and singing. Um, and I grew a lot as an artist from that really learning how to stop with the gimmicks. You, you don't seem like the kind of artist who would do gimmicks at all, though. Well, it's a loaded word. Um, I'm using it to describe the setup I was using. Okay. I do think that things aren't really gimmicks if you do them really well, and that's what I was telling myself at the time, mm-hmm. that if I just do this at the highest level, then it becomes the art. Mm-hmm. Uh, Context. But yeah, stripping it, stripping it away changed things a lot and gave me a new sort of purpose for how the live show should be. So I got home and I realized that uh, I should make an album like that because mm. I had been practicing it for two years on the road. And this, uh, I'm never going to be better at it than after that. So, so I did. I did it uh, about six days of recording. Beautiful. I started with 16 songs or something and recorded them all. Many, many takes of all of them. I had no producer, so it was a lot of uh, being alone <laughs> in the room doing it. And uh, I whittled it down to eight songs. And that's coming out now. There's been three that have been released. The next one comes out in two days. Awesome. They're coming out every Friday for eight weeks. That's pretty awesome. I noticed you have caught on to the trend of group releasing an album. Yeah, I've never done that before until this. So I'm trying that one one single per week. What made that decision happen? I may ask. Well, I filmed the whole thing, so that's part of it. I have I have content. I have a video for every song, so it's possible to release them in that way and have the video component. Mm-hmm. Usually with an album you have like a music video or two mm-hmm. and then there's not really a way to release the rest of the songs with a visual. Maybe a picture, but that doesn't have the same kind of grab so since i have eight videos for eight songs i figured i could make something out of each one nice it almost it almost is a well i don't know if healthier is a fair word but a, a more balanced process in a way aren't you it, it's like more cyclical and you're constantly you know in the thick of it without having to you know build on this huge launch kind of a thing where you kind of put this huge baby out right at one go it's almost like putting the baby out in parts <laughs> yeah i've noticed the more i release things the less scary it is to do i wouldn't agree like my second album i worked for years on and then put it out and it was just felt like so much was riding on it and i don't feel that anymore which is a big relief I think the key to that is just doing it more and more and realizing it's just another drip in the pond of uh, your the stuff you make. 
some of it will catch on and some of it won't. Mm. I have to not worry about that. That's beautiful. If I may ask, how does that make you feel when you're actually in the thick of the music making process? Is that something you ever think about? Like, do I think about the release when I'm making it? Do you fi- ever find yourself thinking about, you know, because you're a very DIY hands-on guy. You're doing pretty much everything on your own. Yeah. Do you ever find yourself thinking about the quote-unquote end result while at the very beginning phases of the process? Somewhat. I think it's pretty unhealthy to do that. Um, Agree. And I try to compartmentalize in all aspects of music making as much as I can. That starts even with the writing. Like, uh, I firmly believe in not recording or not making a demo until the song's fully written. Um, and not, you know, not thinking about production or mixing or anything like that while you're writing the song. I love that. So I take that philosophy into all, all the aspects. Each thing is its own thing. I love that. I've always been very uh, intent on that being the real songwriter's way in a way like in the song is should be completely um I almost said edible I don't know why uh, completely <laughs> um uh, listenable in your head uh, before you even enter the studio record the first note I love that you say that that being said uh, over the years I have been more open to other people um approaching it in a very different way a lot of producers where the doing is their writing process uh, and i respect that right sure lots of people work on the computer yeah uh as as they create uh and that just doesn't work for me but some people some people really make amazing things like that so i can't judge here's the funny thing it works pretty well for me when that's not my album hmm. have you ever done that for others where you're you know Part of a very yeah, different kind of it still doesn't work. I feel that huh. if I'm working on a song, I need to fully understand what the song is, and then the production is fast and easy because I already know the arc of the song. I know where it needs to feel big, where it needs to be powerful, where it needs to be soft and chill. Yeah, um, that's already all planned, and then the production decisions are easy. Context. Yeah. So everything you're actually contributing is with complete and awareness of the finer aspects and again context everything is yeah I, I love that but i think that that's that speaks for the very um i'm looking for the right word here the very uh high level of your artistry and uh, it's a level of artistry that is not the norm in today's industry to the best of my experience is that something you're aware of that's really nice of you thank you um i wouldn't put it exactly like that but i got her <laughs> that the bar that has been set by the great artists of yeah. uh the beginning of time until 1980 something mm-hmm. is extremely high you're an old soul aren't you <laughs> i guess that means that but uh instagram culture and tiktok culture and all that doesn't live up to that bar yeah for sure and once in a while it does you'll see something that's amazing but almost everything we consume doesn't approach that bar and i definitely try to live up to that bar hard relate totally with you man i struggle immensely with um, the the role instagram ends up playing i i am yeah uh, which is ironic because i kind of work in that industry at this point not at least part-time but it's i am not down with um 
I'm not completely resistant, but I really struggle with social media being the defining voice behind the route music is supposed to take. Right. I think one of the most harmful things is looking at an Instagram post of music that is not good and seeing it doing well. Oh. Because that completely <laughs> sort of shifts the mindset. Um, oh. And that's one of the things I'm most trying to push away by not being on social media as much. I need to not have, I just need to not see that. <laughs> oh, thank you for saying that, man. But there, th that's where this whole, you know, cerebral uh, discussion starts with who defines good at the end of the day, you know. Sure. Just to be clear, I'm totally... Yeah, what is quality? Yeah, exactly. I'm totally on your camp because uh, I, right. I know, you know, your work ethic. Uh, I've been following your work for a while now. And more importantly, I've been following the work of your collaborators for decades now. Mm -hmm. So just to clarify, I completely hear you when you use the words quality and good and bad. Yeah, yeah, of course it's subjective. But... Uh, is it though? <laughs> we all agree that... But, right, I mean, somewhat. But you... Everyone knows when something's really great. You can, and you can admit that maybe it's not your own personal taste, but it is still great. Exactly. I ironically uh, put out an Instagram post recently where I write about <laughs> if the foundation of a house is subpar in its quality, it'll be evident. It, you know that that house is not going to last long, and you're going to feel how the the job was a shoddy one. Yeah. And the same kind of does apply to music, but except the way the disintegration happens is not something everyone can see. You know, even seeing a disintegrate is an acquired skill. Right. And that kills me sometimes. I think that metaphor is very good for songs. Oh, yeah. Like, if the song itself is not great, the production and everything else about it can be great. Mm. And uh, the whole thing is still bad. Yeah. But those are not very popular words these days, right? Good and bad, especially in the arts. Like. Yeah, I love using those words. Me too. I love using, <laughs> I also like that. the word perfect. I use the word perfect all the time. Yeah. And my collaborator, Abe Browns, hates that word. So does Michelle and Degocello. They both agree that perfect is bad. Yeah. Uh, but I love it and I use it even more because they hate it. Um, but yeah, I think perfect just means there's not an immediate other thought that could be better. <laughs> mm. it just uh the thing seems to just fit perfectly i hear you oh i just use perfect i use the word in the definition but you know what i mean yeah totally i um i i would tend to be um i think not that this is very important but um i i hear the sentiment behind what you're getting at when you use the word perfect i would just really use different uh, nomenclature for me it's sense of alignment you know, when it's aligned, Alignment. you know, there yeah. it goes. Yeah. You know, it's, it, you know, when you don't have to ask yourself if it's working or not, mm -hmm. that's kind of, yeah, that, that, that's, that's that perfect. Is, exactly. Bingo. And when you say it in that context, I totally hear it, it resonates. Right. And um, any, like weird choices can be perfect too. Like any, any of the great songs from, uh, like I was saying, the beginning of time until uh, 1980 something. And by beginning of time, I mean beginning of recorded music, because that's all we can hear. But yeah, there's plenty of very weird production decisions that feel perfect. They just work. It's also ironic that Michelle and Digiocello would not like that word, because she, for me, is the definition of perfect. Totally. Extremely aligned. Always. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I feel like in the history of the entire music industry, 
and the, oh, needless to say, there's a personal opinion. She's the one artist. She's never put out one bad song. Mm-hmm. No other artist has man. There's like literally not one bad song. The only other person I can, I don't know, think it was maybe Joni Mitchell or, mm-hmm. but you know, Michelle, not one bad album, not even one bad song or even like totally. subpar. Yeah. Yes. So it's ironic the, that she would not like the word perfect. Yeah. The bar of quality is very high with her. Hmm. How'd you find out though, that the word perfect doesn't work for her? Oh, well, I work with her a lot, so I say it, and, and she and Ave uh, give me a hard time about it. What kind of a hard time? I'm curious. Uh, they just say, like, let's use a different word, or, or uh, they'll say, like, well, what does perfect mean? They'll just challenge it, you know? Nice. Uh, but I'm sticking to my guns with that one. <laughs> perfect is fun to use and to just make fun of the whole situation by using it as much as I can. Nice. Yeah, I think it, so much of it depends on who's using it and how. And yeah. um, when you say it, it totally makes sense. Right. I'm going to just check in to see if I have any audience questions. Okay, I have quite a few questions here on Facebook, by the way. Oh, cool. Oh, wow. I had no Okay. A lot of comments, a lot of... Um, I'm going to have to fish out a few to make sure it kind of stays in context. Let's see now. Sorry. No problem. Okay. You talk, you talk about your time with Ari Hernick, for example. Hernick? Honick? Mm-hmm. How am I pronouncing his name? Honick. Honick. Yeah. Um, about um, your, uh, was your first intense rhythm studies? Yeah. yeah. He was a guru for me too. Yeah? And still is. Awesome. Yeah. And you talk about how you really appreciated the way he was in your corner, lovingly telling you how your time isn't that great. <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, that's what he did. Uh, we played a song when we first met and he said, well, that was a lot of things, but it wasn't swinging. Mm-hmm. Um, which was a hard pill to swallow. Um, but yeah, he just has a very analytical, like simple way of teaching where he figures out what you need to do and gives you very simple things that are very targeted. Um, and I really appreciate that with rhythm because there's a lack of understanding of how to teach it, especially in jazz, because that whole genre is based on it. And yet there's, uh, you know, there's volumes and volumes about jazz harmony and all those things, but mm-hmm. nothing about rhythm or not nothing, but very few things. Oh, so feel you, man. And when we talk about it, we talk about feel, which is a word that means, oh, yeah. uh, it's an indescribable thing that you just sort of get and you have it mm-hmm. and you just listen and sort of, uh, the great people just have it. And that's very harmful for teaching someone who doesn't have it because it feels like an impossible task to get it mm-hmm. and there's no clear way to do it. So he has a bunch of exercises that you do and they just make certain things very clear. Yeah. Teaching, I think teaching, is about clarity, about making simple things very clear. And he, he really understands that. Would you say that was the first time you were, it was like your real confrontation with how physical rhythm actually is and its role um, in music? Well, I knew, I always was interested in making things feel good. And mm-hmm. as an organ player playing the bass, that's a big part of it. Mm-hmm. But I never did exercises about it. I only imitated, which is really important. Um, but 
it can only get you so far if you're missing certain fundamentals. It was definitely my first time being confronted with actual concrete, like understanding of what rhythm is, like the building blocks of it. Oh, interesting. Um, how old were you here? If I jog my memory, I was in college. I made it all the way to age uh, 19 without having anyone sort of expose my weaknesses in rhythm. So how were you approaching rhythm before this, if I may ask? Just reading or just the visual? Uh, well, I, w I didn't work on it specifically. I just imitated and played things like the people I liked, which works for some people if they're that clued in, I guess. But I've always been melodically and harmonically driven, so it, it would take a backseat a lot of the time. So if I may request you to kind of summarize the aha effect of this experience, how would you kind of sure. describe it's the crux of it? I'm yeah. curious. Well, the result of it was just two weeks after starting these lessons, I went to an ensemble at school and I started playing and everyone said, wow, you've really improved. What chords are those? Those are amazing. How, why, why are your lines so good now? Interesting. And I was like, well, nothing changed except the rhythm. And now you hear the things I've been playing all along in a different way. Oh, that is so interesting. Um, that actually is a great bridge into the next question um, I got, which is, um, yeah, you talk also about how uh, it quote-unquote paid off that whole the, that's time you spent Studying rhythm. Sorry if I'm not being that articulate. I'm looking at like three different screens right now. Sure. Yeah. I'm trying to summarize questions. Um, and how uh, you also talked about then this was on the podcast you were um, on, on Nick's podcast, Nick Samrat's podcast, about how it takes a while before you, you even notice uh, that it's paying off. Um, right. You know, um, that there is a, a bit of lag on the timeline. Yeah. They say that they say that you're practicing for 10 years in the future, which could be a nice thought or a depressing thought, depending on where you are in your in your journey. But yeah. it definitely wasn't like that for me with rhythm. It, mm -hmm. Like it was such an immediate effect, being just shifting my focus. I can completely relate to that. My question though is, how long do you think it takes others to notice the pay? You know, the difference in your. You almost kind of answered that question. And yeah, it and, was and it was fast. It was fast, right? And more importantly, how important is it for others to notice that's like a horrible question to ask but i can't think of a better way to put it uh i mean you're you're doing it for yourself but if you want to play in groups uh you don't want them to notice that you've gotten better really that i mean that's not the point the point is that you're able to have dialogue musical dialogue with them in a more detailed way in a in a deeper way yeah like drummers, drummers think about rhythm in the way that I'm talking about, and most other instrumentalists don't. So it just allows you to play with drummers uh, and have them and really be talking to them instead of they're laying a bed for you to do whatever over. Instead of that, you're intertwined. So good. Love that. You know, um, not to go, on the, go off in a complete segue, but a sidekick is a personal trainer for uh, artists and musicians. Oh, cool. And one of the wow. uh, one, one of the most badass uh, 
people I've studied with, even though very briefly, is a gentleman called Steve Maxwell, who's in his 70s and uh, is fitter than the average 20-year-old. So I asked him once, on what is your definition of peak physical health? And his reply was, when you don't notice you have a body. Mm. When, you just not, when you're not thinking about your body and moving without having to think about if your body is going to keep up with your uh, movements or not. That for me is almost like, that's what having good time is. If both you and others don't notice how good your time is, that's when you're like... Right. It's, you're just playing your ideas and yeah. they're in, in there. I guess it, it could apply to technique generally um, to any musician, but specifically to rhythm, I find that it's, um, it, you know, there's no space for cerebral thought. The minute we start thinking about rhythm, it's, we almost usually out of it. I, I can only speak for myself, though. For sure. There's no space for any thinking when you're playing. Thank you. And that's what practicing is for, to get the thinking out of the way. Thank you. I'm, I'm really relieved and happy to hear mm -hmm. that you're on the same page about this because uh, it's very evident to hear how connected you are when you, uh, when you perform. Harmony and rhythm are the same. Cohesive at a level where the dualities of, them, of it all are just non-existent in a way. Right. Just and, all uh, part of the same. Yes. Right. And that is a good bridge into my next question, which is, Multi-instrumentalism. How do you keep up your chops as a multi-instrumentalist? Because you're not, you're not just fooling around. Like you play legit bass, you play some legit drums, you play some legit harmonica. And these are all like, they're very specific motoric spaces. Do you have a system? Yeah, I would say I d definitely don't like practice them all every day or something like that. Mm -hmm. I go through phases of falling in love with a, an in instrument or aspect of an instrument and working on it. Mm -hmm. um, and I let the other things fall to the side. Um, and it's just been enough phases that I can do them all at a certain level. But I don't know, that level changes. Like, I'm able to play them on my songs and in the studio, but I can't play a gig. Like, to play bass on a gig, I would have to practice a lot right now. My bass chops are pretty far. I just haven't been doing it. I guess I try not to think about keeping the chops up, because that feels as aligned as just like working on something to get better at it and because I enjoy it. Do you think there's a phase musicians reach where um, the music uh, just kind of becomes your guiding uh, energy for your chops to kind of keep up on their on its own where it's not about... I mean, a lot of it is mental for sure. Like I mm -hmm. think about it a lot and like sort of figure out... I deal with harmony like that you know, on piano, like... I've noticed that sort of my restful brain state is often like working out how something works on piano. Beautiful. Um, technique can't be worked on like that, really. Technique comes from hard work and learning how to relax as you mm. do things that are hard. Very important word, relax. And that, that uh, takes time, for sure. That's something I have to pick your brain on because you always look so chill, man. Is, were you just born this relaxed and chill? Or is that a skill you kind of put in practice into as well? The mindfulness? I've definitely put in practice. It's a technique thing. Like it's, I definitely have anxieties and things like that, that mm -hmm. is separate. But in terms of, if you're talking about how my hands look, that's technique. That's not, that's not anything else. That's not a brain relaxation. It's that I've worked on 
learning how to relax my hands. It's as simple as that. And I think it's the same for all instruments. You come upon certain certain problems that the instrument inherently has, and you need to open yourself up and figure out how to do it in the most relaxed way. Economy of motion. Like on bass and guitar, you when you see people who aren't that good, their pinkies are up. They're playing mm-hmm. like this, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's the same on piano. People's pinkies are up. So you learn how to get this basic feeling to look like this i don't know is this podcast gonna have video <laughs> or does this uh, not make any sense i think this part is gonna have it yeah. okay great <laughs> so yeah if you just have your hand in a relaxed state mm-hmm. uh where it's sort of like cupped not gripping but just completely relaxed everything needs to come from there for any instrument so true and if you can do that that's 90 percent of it my last teacher studied with that conservatory he had amazing technique he was like this German guy with like mad technique, uh, Andy Herman, not as well known, not a 16th of as well known as he deserves to be. That's a whole different story. But anyway, we joke about how you could never really see his hands when he was playing. It was almost like a covert operation. You, it almost looked like he wasn't even moving them. Right. Yeah. Totally on point. Totally. As little movement as possible. Exactly. Jake, I want to respect your time. We've been at it at an hour. How much more time do you have? It feels good. Yeah. Awesome. In that case, let's dig into a few more questions here. Sure. Let's see what the audiences have and what I have. And let's go on with a few. Right. You have carried organs as a, as a younger musician and roads. Yeah. And carried them up fire escapes into clubs. Oh, my God. I, I think I've done that a couple of times. Not with an organ, a roads. A roads is still, like, doable. But you, you like, carried an organ. Organ is a different thing than roads, yeah. Different beast altogether. Number one, was it worth it? Number two, would you do it again? I know you wouldn't do it again because I've heard you <laughs> say that once. Of course it was worth it. Um, yeah, tell me more about that. Yeah, I was very lucky to have an organ at a pretty early age. I got mm-hmm. one that was carryable when I was 16 or so, mm-hmm. um, and it fit in a car. So I would drive it to all the gigs and set it up, and I sort of credit that for being an actual organist and not a pianist or keyboardist who can dabble on organ because I got Beautiful. the actual situational knowledge of how to play a gig. I love that you mentioned that. When, you, when gigs are long, when they're three sets or something, an hour or more per set, like you get bored with yourself and that's when you start inventing your own ways of solving things. Did you have a Leslie on board as well? Oh, yes. Sure. You feel the sound changing, right? Like the longer the gig gets, you, f- you actually feel the whole... Well, yeah, eventually you stop caring in a good way. Yeah, exactly. You know, it stops being such a big deal that you're playing a show. And instead you're just trying to make it through and keep yourself interested and have fun. uh, Yeah. Or just just make it through the gig. I miss those gigs so much. Yeah, I haven't played actually one of those gigs in a long time. I ask myself if they even exist anymore. I don't know. I'm I'm sure they do in New York, but you don't really have those gigs in Europe anymore. Like where you just like you're playing to a point where you know people aren't interested anymore and it just gives you a whole different degree of freedom. Right. I don't know if those gigs even exist anymore. Yeah, it's it's sort of, there is a sort of beauty in like background gigs at restaurants. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, it gets, there is a really good happy medium where people do care and people are interested, but the gig's just way too long. Yeah. <laughs> and that combination is like, mm-hmm. well, you still have to not make them hate you. Bingo. You know, it's not that they're talking over you. It's that they're there and they want to be entertained. Yeah. And you've already been playing for so long. 
I think the economy of motion thing comes from playing for a long time too in a row. Like, Oh yeah. Like I remember for a long time, my left uh, hip would hurt from playing organ from the left foot on the pedals. It would, I'd be like really stiff by the end of the gig and like, it would be hard to walk. And for a day or two after I would have this sort of weird pain in my hip and that eventually went away and my ankle too. It eventually went away as I just discovered the way that I could make my body use the least amount of effort. Hard late. Second year into my conservatory diploma, I got one of those uh, infamous um, tendonitis things, which obviously, Mm. needless to say, eventually turned out not to be tendonitis. Um, Mm -hmm. um, It's also very interesting how how much the psychology of of it all plays a role in the entire system. Totally. Um, I've played gigs where my body should have been completely destroyed afterwards, but I felt fucking amazing the next day mm-hmm. because I was just having a ball of a time. Yeah. Uh, so I could feel my body technically destroyed, but it just never was a problem. And on other days, you're like, oh, this is going to be a super easy gig. But next thing you know, you can't, oh, you've got a crick, crinking your neck or something. Yeah. Having fun is a big part of health. Um Organs, pianos, synths. You've talked about how you actually started off with your roots being organ and piano, which I love. I, I feel that I really hear that in your music, and that's where my heart, most of my heart lies. Yeah. Piano. Right. Organ was much later. Yeah. But shortly before going on tour with Bilal, for example, you were primarily an organ and piano guy. Yeah. And that was the first time you got into synths. Correct me if I'm wrong? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah? true. That was the first time that I had to make sounds... Like I had to do sound design for that gig. Um, how much of a different mindset is that? Um, well, that was from necessity. Uh, figuring out mm-hmm. how to make the sounds was just because the band was bass, guitar, vocals, drums, and me. And the mm-hmm. guitarist is going to play all the stuff that sounds like guitar, and everything mm-hmm. else that's making any kind of harmonic sound is me. Right. A big thing I learned was how to like parse through the recording and figure out which sounds are important and which sounds aren't important for a live show. Yeah. Which is sort of very different than you might expect. Um, oh yeah. Like for the first, there's a couple waves of my like sound design in the Bilal band. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning I would make every single sound and sort of split them on the keyboard. So I would be oh, I like splits. doing like six different things at once yeah. and triggering things and all these things. Are you good with splits? You enjoy them? And didn't enjoy that process so much, no. No, no, it, but, it's horrible. Like, it feels so wrong. <laughs> the, 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 the instrument starts feeling so weird. It's like all of a sudden it's a completely foreign entity for me. Well, yeah, I learned you have to practice a lot with the split. After you've made the sound and, and figured out exactly where everything's going to go, mm-hmm. then you have to play, you have to rehearse by yourself to the point where you can improvise and know where the splits are. Like, mm. anytime it feels like I'm doing something like classical music, like, okay, at this point, this happens, then this happens, then this happens. If it feels purely like that, it doesn't work with me because I come from a jazz mindset, I guess, where I'm mm-hmm. improvising. So I have to just know where all the splits are, know what the theoretical part is, which means know, like, what, if I played the gig, quote unquote, perfectly, where it, that's, by the way, a different use of the word perfect. That's the, Oh, interesting. What's, where's the difference? That's a bad perfect. <laughs> that means playing everything exactly as it was intended with no flair or excitement. Okay, just quick like, segue, just to clarify. Sure. Good perfect, bad perfect. Define it. Define yeah, it first, yeah. please. 
Good perfect means aligned. Bad perfect, well, there's a couple of different kinds of bad perfects, but the one I'm using now, it's not necessarily bad, it's just sterile. Yeah, um, sums, sums it up right. So you have to know the sterile parts, like the parts if they were played exactly as you imagine them to be. Mm -hmm. And then you have to be able to improvise within that context. Um, but anyway, so that was the first wave of making those patches where I would have like a huge number of splits. And then through, through time and learning what works on stage, um, I sort of learned that people want to hear a band playing. You know, they don't want to hear, if they want to hear, really want to hear the record, they're going to put on the record. Mm -hmm. So you learn, like the, the basic thing the keyboardist should be doing is playing a keyboard sound, like a Rhodes or something. I agree. Uh, so I learned through time that that's where the focus has to be. And then there's a couple other sounds maybe that are going on. But learning which ones to just ignore was a big deal. Thank you so much for saying that, man. You know, I grew up in an era where a lot of a lot of keyboard players just were glorified tape machines. Mm. So they'd just be put in the back and just play the odd string sample or just every now and then. But basically... All the stuff the bass player or the guitar player wouldn't want to do is like, okay, let's get a keyboard player and get him to do the dirty work. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that is a lot of the musician circle. For for a specific part of my life, I grew up around. It's a it's like the unhealthiest definition of a keyboard player one can possibly come up with, in my opinion. You're like, in my opinion, one of the pristine examples of what a healthy background in keyboards, like a multi keyboardist, should be. Start with the piano get into organ and then get into sound design, get into synths and make sure you know where the roots of your actual instrument is and don't get carried away with splits and sound design. Especially in this day and age where you can basically get a computer or a whole bunch of other different tools to do sound design. That's the one thing I really like about computers being used live. A lot of the lesser graceful things keyboard players were forced to do in the 90s, I think. Uh, can be taken over by laptops now. Yeah, if you're, if you're playing perfectly, meaning the sterile perfect. I also love how you talk about eventually, uh, was I think this was still the Bilal gig where uh, you stopped carrying a digital piano and just started playing the piano parts on the roads. Yeah, exactly. That nails it, right? That's, that's kind of how, that's kind of the history of the roads. You know, that's how the roads how it came about. Right. It's supposed to be uh, literally an electromechanical piano. Right. Like people don't care what sound it is, if it's a Rhodes or a piano, it's just, that's fulfilling a role, which is like the harmonic bed. Yeah. That being said, do you approach the two instruments ever so slightly differently? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Tell us a little more, please. Well, uh, my influence for that is Herbie. Yes. He plays all these different sounds. Herbie forever. Herbie forever. He sounds like himself yeah. on all of them, but it's a distinct thing. Bingo. He doesn't play in the same way. He doesn't voice the chords the same. Yeah. It's, it's like a subset of his mind. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, he's the gold star for, for learning how different sounds work. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I just can't say that better. He sounds so different. but The North Star, not the Gold Star. North Star, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, it's like, you know, one bar and you know it's him on piano, acoustic. One bar and you know it's him on Rhodes as well. And it's so Herbie, but so subtly different too, the way he... Yeah, uh, he approaches. I think yeah, he'd be my favorite. So him and George Duke would be my second favorite totally. on, on the electric mm -hmm. piano. Those are my uh, heroes. All right, let's see if my audience has a few more things they want to pick your brain on, so I don't hog all the conversation. Uh, okay, this is interesting. 
I'm not sure what exactly it means, uh, so feel free to interpret. The role of a keyboardist, how okay is it to say no? Hmm. How do you, you mean say no to the gig or say no to a specific thing that you're being asked to do? Um, um, if, it's, if it's a certain thing that you're being asked to do, if you're a sideman, you can't really say no to a role that you're being asked to play. But it's sort of your job to find out how you can do that in a way that feels aligned with yourself, but still fulfilling the role. That's a brilliant answer. Nice. Um, is it is it always possible though? Have you ever has that always worked for you? Uh, no, it's not always possible. It happens a lot actually with artists that I feel like they're asking me to do something that's not right. Mm -hmm. um, it happens more and more. The more I do production, and the more I'm my own artist. Um, I've been coming up against that a lot and I haven't fully figured it out. I think possibly I'm just in a space where I need to not be a sideman for a while. Um, but I also think that lots of those things can be, can be fixed by playing a lot of gigs with the band. Like, like those things get ironed out. It's very hard to rehearse and figure out exactly what everyone should be doing. But as soon as you play a gig, you immediately know that, that thing's dumb. We need to fix that. This thing doesn't work. So hopefully there's an MD musical director who's clued into that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I think the keyboardist role is often musical director in a way, even if it's not official. Yeah. They have to be sort of aware of the minutia and how to make them be, uh, be just as clear and well done as possible. Oh, completely agree. Couldn't have said it better. Have you ever found yourself in a position where you had to say, hey, maybe I'm not the right guy for this gig, quote unquote? Uh, Has it ever come to that? Yeah, I mean... Like the polite way of saying, fuck off, I don't want to do this <laughs> anymore. <laughs> sure, I mean, I say no a lot now. Yeah? Uh, almost, almost to most things. Because um, that's just the place I'm in right now. But yeah, if it feels like I don't have enough ability to improvise if the music doesn't call for it at all mm -hmm. uh, I don't usually feel aligned with with the goal if I'm being asked to be a computer I guess the flip side to that entire equation is also attracting the right kind of collaborators right totally yeah if you're playing with people who you love the music of usually it's going to work is there a quote-unquote strategy you follow to make that happen I don't think about it apart from just really being super good at what you do <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I don't think about it that hard. I just try to associate with people who I admire. That's all. Awesome. That's easier said than done sometimes too, though, isn't it? It's kind of the accessibility thing. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it really works to seek out people, like, to blindly grab at them through social media or something. Mm -hmm. But, like, it helps to have your own notoriety and body of work to point to mm -hmm. and then just trust that it will happen eventually if there's someone you really want to work with. Nice. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, we have 10 more minutes to go. So I want to make, I want to make sure no one is left. Um, questions. Okay. This is a very, this is so broad that it actually is kind of interesting. I'm pretty sure it's been a while. Someone's asked you this question or I shouldn't guess. What is the definition of a musician? I don't know. I would tend to agree. It's 
especially in this day and age. It can mean so many different things. It's it's whatever you want it to mean. How's that? That's better. Yeah. What does it mean to you, though? Do you have a compass there? Um, I guess going back to when we were talking about the bar being set very high by the previous musicians, uh, mm -hmm. keeping that in mind that there's like there's music gods. That's how I think of them. Nice. And we have to live up to that and honor them by making things as good as we can. Not for recognition or notoriety, but just as what we do, then we have to honor it. Beautiful. That is actually a really wonderful sentiment. You're working with one of the gods, and I say that because I've heard you actually quote her as well, Michelle, again. Uh, goddess of goddesses. Yes, she is. Yes, I completely agree. What's that like? How did that come about? How do you feel about it? I caught you folks on your Twitch talk as well recently. I really hope you do a few more of those, by the way. Yeah. What's that been like? What's the journey been like? And why do you think she continues? To, why is Jake Sherman one of the people she continues to work with? Oh, that's a hard question. I know. Well, yeah, it's one of the great joys in my life to work with her. Because um, she talks about you often too, right? She's so understanding and mm -hmm. she gives so much space to everyone in her band to be themselves. Wow. That's something that's really uh, taught me a lot. Um, I feel like as a leader myself, I'm very sort of, I don't have the confidence yet to do that. Instead, I'm telling people what to do and trying to like envision it as much as I can ahead of time and then plan it out. And she's just completely open. She has sort of a sketch of a vision and she just chooses the right people and lets them do their thing. And uh, everyone feels like a full person mm. with her. And it's so beautiful. Wow. It's amazing, man. I mean, it can't be irrelevant that needless to say she's working with some of the best musicians in the world and that is not a coincidence that is a synergy that has been that includes a lot of thought and effort behind it too and uh, these are also musicians she obviously for lack of a better term handpicked to be part of that process right so mm -hmm. yeah and probably envisioned that entire process being the way it is on the basis of the same she has so um, much trust in who she works with Oh, wow. And that's really important. I'd really love to um, meet her someday. Um, how did you meet? How did you folks meet? Uh, she was working with Jack DeBow, who's a great drummer and, and mm -hmm. producer. Uh, mm -hmm. And she was doing sort of a, a fundraising show at her son's school, her son's music school. Um, and they needed to put a band together. So it was one of those things where he called me the night before and said this is rehearsals tomorrow can you do it so i said of course and i did one of the classic musician nights of cramming and learning all the music in one night and trying to memorize as much as i could making sounds doing the splits like get everything like it should be oh splits included splits included uh oh shit you know i'd never met her and i my only reference was the Bilal gig so i was just trying to do that as much as i could and yeah we did the rehearsal and it just felt great. Um, and she was very appreciative of it. How many songs? It was a full gig. I don't know, 10. Okay, 10. Eight. I'm not sure. Um, her songs are very hard for me to memorize. Really? Because they're not, they're not 
simple verse chorus verse chorus bridge chorus forms mm. they're weird forms weird numbers of bars often things triggered by vocals like like she'll talk and there will be a certain thing she says which triggers the next section lots of loop based thinking <laughs> um so that's been a journey for me to learn how to function in that because it doesn't come easily to me is a lot of it cue based as well uh it's not completely cue based because that would be easier like right. she she would just put up a hand and we would go it's not like that it's more like this section happens this is 10 bars this section and so you have to just know that <laughs> wow. i thought it was all cue based so i was sort of unprepared for the first like i couldn't understand how some people in the band just knew when the next section would be there yeah. but it turns out you really have to just learn the song as it goes wow as it's meant to be wow that seems quite an edgy position to be in especially for the first rehearsal mad respect man yeah it's about respecting the song like if you really put in the work to understand the structure of it you don't get lost I think that's also the only way to kind of really do an authentic job of something like that. Totally. As a sideman, it's your duty to know the song so deeply. That's sort of the way that you're able, that I'm able to improvise through things because I know the song so well that everything I'm doing is relating to the form and relating to the arc. Do you think that's one of the major reasons why that whole trend of session musicians would just be like these, like mythological super perfect studio cats who can get any job done is fading away or gets kind of died out because people realize that the only people they want to have in their band are people who really really dig their music uh wait you're saying it's dying out because why you know there was there was this whole trend in um, in the 80s especially uh where when studio um uh, trickery was starting to sound like super chic, but it wasn't as easy. So you really had to have like super accurate musicians in the studio. And there was like a whole generation of these studio cats who were like fantastic readers, would nail a take on the first thing. It was like this whole legendary studio musician, mm. musician thing it was like the ultimate status symbol to have. But the flip side of it was a lot of the um, these productions ended up sounding sterile. Got it. Well, um, I guess I'm thinking of like in the 70s and 60s, there's a huge culture of studio musicians. Um, oh. and yeah, that was a that's, different, that was like that's, a live band thing. Yeah. Yes, that's a band different thing. Recording. But yeah. I think all of that is dying out because of computers. And, and just the way music is made now is different. Like it's more made with a producer who can sort of play a bunch of things, mm -hmm. uh, piecing it together. So there's less need for the live band. But then there's the resurgence of bands like Snarky Puppy, for example, who went completely video as a result of which the whole CI was like a performance-oriented live thing where everyone right. was just like really playing, playing, right? Mm -hmm. Do you, you see like a retro movement thing happening there too as well, maybe? The what? A retro kind of a oh, revival yeah. movement. I mean, that revival is now old. <laughs> You're right. Snarky Puppy's been around for 20 years, right? Is that true? Has it been 20 years? Really? Well, 20 years? I don't know exactly, but 20 years ago would have been 2003. When did they start? Maybe not quite that long, but you know, they're not new. <laughs> that's, yeah, a, that's, a, not new. that's not the youngest generation. So for musicians who actually want to follow a similar path to yours, or even mine, for example, not let social media be their 
primary informant in the way they approach arts. Mm -hmm. What are your words of wisdom? What's the best way to find their niche and build on a sustainable career, quote unquote, and do their thing? Yeah. Well, career is different than what I'm talking about. <laughs> I think social media is necessary for a career. Mm. But just most importantly, keep a goal in mind, which is to be great, not to be successful. Those are different. Unless you can convince yourself that being great is being successful. But yeah, just being clear. May I ask you how you feel career is different to assess? Okay, um, I'm putting you on the spot here, I know. And sure. I know we are at 90 minutes, but I can't let this one go. The difference between a career and an artistic practice, what are your primary differences? Well, a career is about money, right? That's what career means, I think. Good point. Good point. Um, artistic practice is about doing something for the sake of doing it and not worrying about the glory. I guess what I'm wondering is um, how realistic is a long-term artistic practice without money actually happening? Without a career, yeah. Uh, I think they can just be thought of as separate things yeah. that are eventually aligning. But nice. I think the problem comes from when you when you fall too much into the career mindset and you forget about the artistic practice. Yes, I tend to agree. There's so, I guess a successful career has so much to do with external perceptions, a lot of which are beyond our control. And when we let that, again, inform too much of our artistic practice, I'm guessing that's counterproductive, right? Yeah, I mean, I recognize that it's a very privileged, privileged concept for me to be able to right now say I'm pushing away career goals as much and instead thinking about artistic practice. Well, to be even, yeah, to be even able to think about that at all, that, that, uh, like the money is not the driving. Well, you put in the work to get to that stage, didn't you? That's true. But yeah, to have money not be the driving force in everything I do is privileged and not everyone has that luxury. Right. <laughs> if we had a little more time, I would get into a bit of a debate with regards to that. Okay. I, uh, I do find it, I find there a lot of potential for debate in that in a good way just to just, yeah, just yeah. to clarify a child's that um, especially in, in your case i would um, say i think it will be privileged of an overnight social media sensation right um, to be in that position i don't think I don't, I don't know if it's privileged for someone who's pretty much for lack of a better time at the risk of sounding melodramatic pretty much dedicated all dedicated all of his life to music i don't know if that's privilege but i'm really thinking out loud here so mm -hmm. That's just me. I want to respect your time, Jake. You've been absolutely freaking awesome. And it's been a blast hanging out with you. Thank you so much for coming out. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this has been really nice. Thank you. Um, thank you. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm glad you feel that way. Uh, before you leave, though, um, where's the best way to find you online? And where's the best way to support your work? Where's the best way to support your upcoming releases? Thanks for asking. Uh, well, if you're interested in the in the actual teaching and learning part, mm -hmm. that's on Patreon. Yeah. So you can find me there. Excellent. And then all this, this new album is coming out on each, each song has a video of just me playing the song and that's on YouTube mm -hmm. on my channel. Mm -hmm. And then uh, any streaming platforms for the listening of it. just under my name. We will make sure all links are included on the episode links for my listeners. Make sure you check into that. Uh, this video is going to be online for 24 hours for those of uh, you who still want to get the unedited version and FYI it'll be taken off and the edited audio will be out in about four to eight weeks. 
and I'll coordinate with you offline as well, Jake, to make sure it releases uh, at a timeline that is in alignment to your music releases. Great. That didn't come out right. Sorry, I'm just blabbing now. It this did, point. it did. Okay, cool. Thanks for coming out again, Jake. Yeah. And uh, have a great day. What time is it in New York? It's It'll be... 1.35. 1.35, yes. I should have known that. Um, have a fantastic day and uh, I will be in touch. Okay, thanks so much. All right, man. You have a good one. Yeah, you do. Bye. Yeah, folks, everyone else, thanks for questions. Thanks for joining us and talk soon. Gratitude from the bottom of my heart for listening to the very end. Please consider taking a minute to subscribe to our show so you know when the next episode is out. This is a labor of love, one I hope snowballs into one that's sustainable in its attempt to support independent thought and authentic relating. And having you as a regular member of our audience is what makes that a realistic prospect. Much love, talk soon. Just another voice out here.